Let me pray for us. God of the morning and of the evening, let your Holy Spirit come upon us gathered here out of love for you. Make this a holy place where we, your people, gather in faith. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1988, I was living in College Station, Texas. A controversial new movie was out, directed by Martin Scorsese, based on a novel of the same name by Nikos Kazantzakis, The Last Temptation of Christ. The Catholic Church was vehemently opposed to the film, and word on the street in College Station, Texas, was that there were going to be protests outside the movie theater. So I just had to go. In a phone call with conversation with my mom, she told me to stay away, but that didn't deter me at all. Even now, years and years later, it is a powerful film. It is beautifully directed and acted. The cinematography is brilliant. And I believe that the reason there was such opposition by so many people to the movie was that it addressed a central question of our faith. And that has been a central question of our faith since the first century. Who is Jesus Christ? Scorsese chose to begin the film with a quote by Kazantzakis that admitted that the book was born from his own spiritual struggle regarding the doctrine of Jesus as both human and divine. Years and years ago, and years upon years ago, in the year 325 of the Common Era, the Council of Nicaea took up this question and sought to resolve it in what eventually became a creed of the church. Was Jesus fully human? Was Jesus fully divine? Was Jesus like God in human form? Was Jesus God? Now, many of you know that one of my very favorite people and one of my favorite writers and theologians is Philip Gully, who is a Quaker. And he uh, wrote a book several years ago called If the Church Were Christian. And here's what he writes. It is clear that for some people in the church, belief is not only everything, it is the only thing. Indeed, I have noticed many Christians refer to themselves as believers, as if Christianity is primarily about believing. But what if Jesus didn't want people to believe certain tenets about him? So much as take seriously the kingdom ethos he promoted. Was the goal of Jesus to convince people he was divine? Did he want to establish a new religion whose chief purpose was his adoration? Though that is precisely what has happened, I doubt it is what Jesus had in mind. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks in today's Bible reading. 
Now, what is interesting is that in this passage today, Jesus is referred to as the human one. The more traditional language for that title is son of man, the human one. And that reflects Jesus' humanity. But later in the passage, Jesus is also referred to as the Holy One of God, which reflects Jesus' divine nature. So within Jesus, whom we have come to call the Christ, which is a Greek word meaning the anointed one, just as the Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one, um, we see this blending of a human and divine nature. Now, what is further interesting about this Bible reading this morning is that Jesus has um, taken his disciples on an expedition to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the northern part of Israel and is, is in the northern part of Israel and is uh, 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. They had to walk for miles to get there. And here they enter Caesarea Philippi. Now that may mean little to you, but it may help you to know that what Jesus has done um, is amazing. He doesn't perform any miracles there. Um, he only teaches, and he teaches this group of people who are faithfully following him. Now, could it be that he has taken the disciples on this retreat for spiritual growth and development? I don't think so. It wasn't exactly the safest place in the world for them to be. It was located in a region in which um, that was named for Caesars and Kings, and it was a military site. And it was a site uh, on the side of the Mediterranean Sea where uh, great empires had uh, ships that fought great battles. I mean, the space was conquered by Alexander the Great. And in the year three of the Common Era, Philip II, a tetrarch of Rome, founded the city at the base of Mount Hermon, and it became a capital, and he named it Philippi. Later in the year 14, he, named, he further named the Caesar Caesarea. So it he further named the city Caesarea, which then became Caesarea Philippi. And so here Jesus stands outside a military fortress of Rome. It would seem that Jesus was not just going to teach the disciples, he needed an object lesson. It is here that just outside this Roman city that Jesus asks the disciples, what's the word on the street about me? What's the gossip out there about me? What, who do people say that the human one is? And they just fall all over themselves trying to answer. Can't you just see them? Well, uh, some say, uh, well, uh, John the Baptist, and others say uh, Elijah, and, and others say one of the prophets, one of the prophets. It is here that Simon is at his best, seemingly clairvoyant when he says, you are the Messiah, the Holy One of the living God. This is the turning point 
in Jesus' story in Matthew. Just as he is squaring his shoulders to go to Jerusalem, Jesus asks the disciples a seemingly obvious question. Who do you say that I am? Can you hear the poignancy in that? In other words, do you get it? Can you see beyond the gossip of the crowds? And he raises this question in the shadow of a city named for Caesars. But what better place to compare and contrast the realm of Caesar with the realm of heaven? What better place for them to see the difference? Now, I don't know about you, but I think that more often than not, I'm, I'm with the crowds. You know, I'm, I'm right there with them saying, well, it might be John the Baptist. You might be Elijah. You might be one of the prophets. It's, it, you know, it's just an easier answer. That's all. Oh, that's not what I confess in public, mind you. You know, when it comes time to answer the question in public, I'm quick to say Peter's words. You are the Messiah, the Holy One of the living God. And here's the thing. Each time I say it or I think it, I really mean it. I really really, really mean it. I want it to be so. But if actions speak louder than words, and of course they do, then I have to admit that most of my actions don't always confess Jesus as a Messiah. The one who showed us what God looks like in human form. Rather, too often I think my actions testify that Jesus is a good man, a great man, perhaps even an example to follow, someone to be inspired by, kind of like the prophets of old. And I suspect that I'm not alone in sensing this disconnect between my public confession and my private, everyday actions, or maybe my public actions. I think most of us also know there's a gap between the words all of us say on Sunday and then the lives we live throughout the week. That's what the critics of the Christian church have always said. Okay, but we don't do that intentionally, do we? I mean, I think we all really, really mean this and want it to be true. What I believe is that we are being called in our individual lives and our communal lives to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant who sided always with the vulnerable in both word and deed. At one and the same time, I think we all know that there is so much more to do that we seem able to do and even our best efforts and most heartfelt attempts will fall short. 
not living as deeply and as truly as our confession says that we would or should, and that often we get confused and scared about what following Jesus really means, especially as our world right now careens out of control. Well, even if we don't get it, Peter gets it. Even if only for a brief moment, Peter gets it. Peter gets that Jesus is asking more than just his name. Jesus is asking more than just about his profession as a carpenter and a rabbi. Jesus is asking something deeper, something richer, something more. Okay, one of the key lines for me in this reading, in this familiar passage, is Jesus' declaration about Peter's confession. Jesus says, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Abba, who is God in heaven. You see, God in that moment was at work in Peter. The Holy Spirit was opening his eyes. Yes, he would screw up mightily. But in this moment, in this moment, God was at work, and God would be at work later, too, in Peter's life. And that is always cause for celebration and thanksgiving. And Jesus gives Peter his day in the sun by blessing him and announcing that he has a new name, and his name will be Peter Petros. And that on Petros, the rock, Jesus will give the keys to the realm of heaven and will build the church. As you know, there are moments when you and I get this right too. We do something right. And when we perceive more of God's purpose than we have previously perceived, when things come together, if only briefly, when we sense God's Spirit at work in us and through us and among us and beyond us, and it is in those moments it makes sense to pause and give thanks because we are getting it. So I think you probably know I meet with pastors and seminary students many times in a week. And the sad song of pastors and people who are the church um, today is that everything has changed. That's our sad song. And we repeat the chorus a lot. We can't gather. We can't sing as a collective body. We can't do the ministries we planned. We can't do quality pastoral care. We can't have family-style gatherings. We can't have our potluck dinners. We can't have our youth sleepovers. We can't, we can't, we can't. But what if, just as in Jesus' day, in that moment at Caesarea Philippi, God is doing a new thing? What if God is moving among us in new ways, calling us to new ways of being in the world? And I think our goal is to open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, and listen to the prophets among us who are calling us forth into this new day and to this new time. 
What if the fact that we have moved to online worship and its ministries is working? It is working, you know. How, and, and not that it will ever replace being together as a faith family, but it is working. And how, how could we have had all the various musicians we have had and will have in our worship service participating, like my nephew Hudson, who lives in New York City? How could we do that if we weren't online? And what about all the people who are reaching us as we broadcast our service all week long, not just at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, all week long, and people watch, and we don't even know they're watching. How about that? How about that? How about confessing Jesus Christ to the world in this new day, in this new way? This is what we are doing. This is what we are being. We are telling the world that God's love is pervasive and real for all people, regardless of what our world, our politics, what our illnesses and deaths tell us, what our failures at creating equality tell us. God is doing a real and new thing, as God has always done. Because you see, when Jesus exclaims, and looks at Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He is acknowledging his full humanity as a created child of God in the image of God. Son of Jonah. He is acknowledging his humanness, identifying his humanity. But Jesus continues and says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the realm of heaven, and, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that identifies Peter's divine nature. Do you hear that? Here's the thing. That human divine blessing wasn't just for Peter. Peter was a stand-in for all of us. Peter was the stand-in for the church universal. Peter was the stand-in for you and me, for all who would get it, who all who would get God's realm at work on the earth and in heaven. All who would get it. All who would follow Jesus. All who would come to know the love and the truth of a God of expansive grace. So do you get it? We're the rock. We're the rock. We're the church. We're the ones on whom Jesus has built the realm of heaven on earth. And we are invited to live the question Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And so let me ask you, how are you living that question right now? Not perfectly, any more than Peter lived his life perfectly. The Apostle Paul, interestingly, in his letter to the church at Rome, gives us a map for how to do that. And the Apostle Paul was far from a perfect person. I commend to you the full chapter of Romans 12. I commend it to you and invite you to read it and pray on it and meditate on it. He says to the church at Rome and to us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your minds. He goes on to say, for as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. Do you hear that? He lays out for us how to be followers of Jesus, faithful followers, how to get it and how to live it. So today, I want us to remember this even if we cannot fully live into our confession of Jesus as a Messiah, the Christ, the Holy One of the living God. Perhaps we can take a brief moment today and focus our thoughts on those moments, those actions, those ideas, when we got it, because they're there, when we faithfully live the question. Why? Because thanksgiving and praise and gratitude is an important thing. They are powerful things. They are empowering things. And today, more than ever, we need to be empowered. Empowered to live fully and to love expansively and to be the fully human, the fully divine presence of God's love in the world. Stay tuned. Because next week, we get to discover not only what it is to declare that Jesus is a Christ, the Holy One of God. And perhaps that's why he told them not to tell anybody. Because next week, we discover what it means to follow Jesus. Amen. Amen.